guys. Happy Saturday. Jason Whitlock filling in for Uncle Jimmy, who's still recovering from surgery. Uh, he's doing well. Keep Uncle Jimmy in your prayers. All right, let's get to it. Let's talk about my fire starters from last week. Uh, we started on Monday talking about Bill Belichick and the bad decisions he made in that big game with Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Take a listen to this. My takeaway from the historic Tom Brady-Bill Belichick class Sunday night is rather unusual. We've created a culture so soft, so free of uncomfortable truth, that it's nearly impossible for anyone to do their job at a high level. We're all on eggshells, afraid of causing a moment's discomfort, worried we might say something that can be twisted for clicks and tricks, terrified we could lose access to someone important. Bill Belichick blew last night's football game. He needed to be called out on NBC's telecast. It didn't happen because our safe space culture frowns on mild critique. In the final minute of Tampa Bay's 1917 victory over the Patriots, Belichick continued his bad streak of poor decision-making. A streak that started the day, he decided he'd rather move on from Tom Brady rather than acquiesce to Brady's small demands. Facing fourth and three with 59 seconds to play, Belichick sent Nick Folk onto the field to attempt a 56-yard field goal in the pouring rain and against the wind. The kick would have given New England the lead by a single point. Tampa Bay still had two timeouts and Tom Brady. Make or miss, it was a really dumb decision. It was too much time on the clock. A week ago, on Sunday Night Football, Aaron Rodgers drove the Green Bay Packers into field goal range at 37 seconds without any timeouts. On Tampa's previous possession, Brady tossed two would-be long TD passes to receiver Antonio Brown. Brown lost the first one in the rain and the lights. He dropped the second, a perfect rainbow that descended from the heavens. But there was more. Patriots rookie quarterback Mac Jones earned the right to throw at least one more pass. He'd completed 31 of 40 passes on the night against a secondary that had to get Richard Sherman off the streets and put him in the starting lineup. They lost another starting defensive back midway through the game. What the hell was Belichick thinking? There was no indication that this moment was too big for Mac Jones. It was for Bill Belichick. He choked. Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, NBC's terrific broadcast team, never commented on the foolishness of Belichick's decision. I can't really blame them. Our culture overreacts to criticism. Had they second-guessed Belichick's obvious error from the broadcast booth, they would become the story, not Belichick. Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth blast Belichick. That would have been a headline. There would be endless debate about the appropriateness of criticizing the greatest coach in NFL history, a six-time Super Bowl winner. Belichick could become even more aloof and dismissive. He could treat Michaels and Collinsworth the way he does the rest of the media, with disdain. Better to leave the discussion of Belichick's boneheaded strategy to Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless, easy to ignore football experts. I'm not criticizing Michaels, Collinsworth, Smith, or Bayless. I'm criticizing the culture created by social justice warriors. They've outlawed legitimate criticism. They've cultivated safe spaces for elites. Fair criticism is defined as hater racism. Multimillionaire football players wear helmets with slogans attached to the back that demand we stop hate and end racism. They're warm and fuzzy sentiments with no tangible finish line or path. What the sentiments create is hostility toward truth and fear of honest discussion. We've eliminated Howard Cosell from the broadcast booth and replaced him with cheerleaders. What's the point of knowing the game at a high level if you're prevented from discussing what you know? This is a culture problem 
not a football problem, not a Collinsworth and Al Michaels problem. They're bowing to the culture. Bill Belichick, like LeBron James and Greg Popovich, Barack Obama, Beyonce, and the highest of them all, St. George Floyd, Belichick has ascended to heights not achieved by Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy, and Michael Jordan in his playing prime. Belichick is an icon above serious questioning. He's football Jesus. It's an honor to share the planet with Belichick. Again, I'm criticizing the culture, not Belichick. Questioning Belichick's decision-making does not diminish Belichick. He's proven his greatness. His status as football's greatest coach isn't up for debate. What can and should be questioned is whether he's lost a coaching step or two. No one sits on the throne forever. Belichick miscalculated on Brady. Not as bad as the Boston Red Sox, Babe Ruth miscalculation, but Belichick clearly gave up on his star pupil three years too soon. And guess what? Belichick probably pushed Brady aside out of fear of the woke mob. Belichick was trapped by his history of letting his stars, Ty Law, Richard Seymour, Lawyer Malloy, leave a year too early rather than a year too late. Had Belichick made an exception for Brady, the woke sports media would have accused the legendary coach of providing Brady white privilege. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Does it sound crazier than statues of George Floyd? Crazier than Maria Taylor insinuating Drew Brees is racist because he defended the flag of the national anthem? Crazier than arguing that men can have babies? The American media eat crazy for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and bedtime snacks. Our country is crazy because we've let social media apps outlaw any truth that causes the slightest discomfort. We've gone from no pain, no gain to whatever a noise destroys. Here's the real irony. The softening of America is why Belichick is in decline. Not the absence of Brady. You can't be Bill Belichick in a soft culture. And this culture is way too soft. Ow! All right, that's me doing what I do. Go after Bill Belichick. You guys know that, you know. Anyway, let's keep it moving. Tuesday, I really got fired up. Bubba Wallace got in my crosshairs and the media's reaction to Bubba Wallace and his first NASCAR uh, race win on the Cup Series, uh, they called it a historic event. I'm not so sure. Uh, if they ever make a movie about NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace, it should be called Greased Lying. It would be the perfect follow-up to the 1977 biopic Greased Lightning, which dramatized the life and times of Wendell Scott, the first allegedly black race car driver to win a NASCAR event. According to corporate media, Bubba Wallace made history yesterday when NASCAR officials canceled the final 71 laps of a race at Talladega Super Speedway because of rain. Wallace, while sitting in his pit, hoping the race would be called, became the second ambiguously black man to win the highest level of stock car racing. This momentous occasion was documented by the Associated Press, the New York Times, and ESPN, as if it were the equivalent of Jackie Robinson's first at bat for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Let me quote from the Associated Press story. With a crowd gathered behind the pit, st standing, chanting its support, one man told his six-year-old son, clad in, Wallace, in a Wallace shirt and jumping up and down along the fence, that he was witnessing history. Now, <clears throat> what we're all witnessing is a distortion of history. Corporate media wants us to believe Bubba Wallace is Wendell Scott in the 2021 is 1963. Let me try another movie analogy. Bubba Wallace is Marty McFly, starring in Half Black to the Future. 
The media believes Bubba's stock car transports him to the 1950s and 60s, where his half-black status would make him controversial and polarizing. It doesn't. And even if it did, Bubba would be shocked at what he found in that long-ago era of racing. Wendell Scott was a publicity stunt. Born and raised in Danville, Virginia, Scott got his shot as a race car driver because the Danville Speedway had trouble drawing crowds. A smart promoter, recognizing the popularity boost integration gave Major League Baseball, decided he needed a black driver to increase attendance and drive media attention. Scott was an infamous bootleg whiskey driver in the area and was light-skinned enough to not spark a full-on KKK rally. Comedian Richard Pryor played the role of Scott in the movie Grease Lightning. Comedian John C. Riley would have been a better choice. Riley looks like one of Scott's seven children. Whatever, Scott started his driving career on the Dixie Circuit, a regional rival to NASCAR. Scott became the Dixie Circuit's top attraction. His white competitors initially tried to kill him on the track, ruthlessly bumping his car, but over time, his competitors came to respect him, his skill, and the courage he showed. Southern newspapers fell in love with Scott and the racial narrative. They began writing favorable articles. Eventually, as most capitalist organizations do, NASCAR decided to cash in on the Wendell Scott phenomenon. Bill France's organization reluctantly granted Scott a license in the mid-1950s. In 1963, Scott won a race in Jacksonville, Florida. Track officials ruled that a white driver, Buck Baker, won the race. Two hours later, track officials determined they made a clerical error and that Scott won the race by two laps. NASCAR waited two years before officially awarding Scott the victory. Wendell Scott faced real bigotry, discrimination, and hardship. Corporate media wants you to believe nothing has changed and that Bubba Wallace is reliving Scott's life in 2021. It's just not true. Scott raced as a gimmick on a shoestring budget. Bubba Wallace has been previously backed by the king of racing, Richard Petty, the man Wendell Scott passed to win the 1963 race. Wallace is now backed by Michael Jordan and McDonald's, arguably the two biggest brands in America. Modern corporate media refuses to tell America's story of racial progress. Worse, it's distorting the past and trying to make it worse. Look at this excerpt from the Associated Press story on Bubba Wallace. Wallace is the first black driver to win at the top level of elite stock car racing since Wendell Scott in 1963, a race in which he wasn't declared the victor until long after Buck Baker had already been awarded the trophy. NASCAR at last presented Scott's family with his trophy from the race two months ago. This is Grease Line. It's an intentional misrepresentation of fact. Someone unfamiliar with Scott's history could easily conclude after reading that passage that NASCAR waited 57 years to recognize Scott's victory. NASCAR waited two hours. The organization waited two years before updating its official records. As for the trophy presentation at Scott's family, that was just another modern day publicity stunt done to capitalize on all the meaningless George Floyd inspired racial publicity stunts sanctioned by corporate America. Pretending America is trapped in a racist Groundhog Day is the mainstream media's number one grift. Scott faced seething hostility on the racetrack and had a victory stolen from him. When it comes to Wallace, today's media believes that a knot on a garage door rope that Wallace never saw is the equivalent of what Scott experienced. From the Associated Press story from yesterday, 
In June 2020, at Talladega, NASCAR discovered a noose in the garage stall assigned to Wallace. The finding came just a week after NASCAR blamed the Confederate flag or banned the Confederate flag at its events at Wallace's urging. But wait for it. The AP's next sentence renders the previous paragraph pointless. Quote, the AP wrote this. The FBI investigated and found that the noose was tied at the end of a garage door pull and had been there for, for months, meaning Wallace was not a victim of a hate crime. If he wasn't a victim of a hate crime, why bring it up in a story yesterday in promotion of Bubba Wallace? Nothing happened. So you just wasted a bunch of paragraphs trying to paint the impression that, oh my God, look what happened to Bubba Wallace. A noose was tied in his, in his garage and people were threatening. Oh, but no, they weren't. The FBI investigated and it was nothing but a, a, a knot on a rope to pull the garage door down. They act like every time a black person sees a knot that looks anything like a noose, that we just fall to pieces. Oh my God, they're out to kill us. They're out to kill us. There's a knot at the end of a rope. <laughs> Most, I, I'm just, it's a joke. The New York Times canonized Wallace yesterday by arguing his wearing of t-shirts and promotion of slogans in support of George Floyd, Eric Garner, and Black Lives Matter raised Wallace from relative obscurity to national prominence. Times wrote that Wallace told them a year ago that he'd given little to no fault about his blackness until the Black Lives Matter movement became hyper popular over social media. Times, I'm quoting here, that changed in 2020 after Wallace watched the video of the killing of Ahmad Arbery, a black man who was shot while jogging in a mostly white neighborhood in Georgia. Wallace said he was stirred to think more deeply about racial dynamics of his country and his sport and to finally speak out. It's more Grease lying. Bubba Wallace, no different from the New York Times, no different from the Associated Press, no different from ESPN, saw an opportunity to profit and benefit from the death of black men killed by white men. It's a hustle. It's not much different from the hustle Wendell Scott agreed to 60 years ago when he joined the Dixie Circuit as its main ambiguously black attraction. Ow! I kept the blaze going on Wednesday and went after the Associated Press, their motorsports writer, Jenna Fryer, and everybody else that profits in racial fake news this was probably my favorite fire starter of the week. Uh, Jenna Fryer, the Associated Press's motorsports writer. She desperately wants Bubba Wallace to be the second coming of Wendell Scott, the first black driver to win a NASCAR race. So do many of the descendants of Scott the primary benefactors of the Wendell Scott Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit established to commemorate Scott's legacy and employ Scott's descendants. Uh, yesterday, in reaction to my column exploring corporate media's obsession with pretending Wallace faces 1950s style anti-black bigotry, Fryer and Warwick Scott Sr., a grandson of the deceased driver, criticized my column over social media. In a since-deleted tweet, Fryer called my opinion piece a literal hot take. She then claimed I was unqualified to write it because I've never personally interviewed Bubba Wallace and because she's seen Bubba Wallace need security, seen convoys of Confederate flags, heard the deafening boos. Warg Scott, the founder of the Wendell Scott Foundation, called me a clown in one tweet and challenged me to talk face to face in another one, writing, quote, you're the first black man that I have ever known to disrespect and disregard my grandfather's legacy in such a manner. Instead of me ripping you to pieces on Twitter, how about a face-to-face -face opportunity to discuss? 
Well, I've extended Warwick Scott an invitation to discuss the matter right here on Fearless with Jason Whitlock. He asked me to DM him, I DM'd him. He hasn't responded. He's not here as of yet. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen the next day. I don't know, but I would like for Warwick, Jenna, and everyone to listen to me right here restating and clarifying my point of view on Bubba, Wendell, and corporate media's obsession with transporting blacks to the future, AKA pretending that 2021 America is really no different from 1961 America. This false narrative is done for profit and harms modern race relations. The false narrative relies on an an intentional, blatant distortion of fact, truth, and reality. Jenna Fryer, Bubba Wallace, and Warwick Scott all financially benefit from the promotion of the false narrative that Wallace is racing in an environment similar to the one Wendell Scott competed in 60 years ago. Let me take a moment here and establish some context. The Associated Press is America's primary news source and the world's foundational source for news about the United States. The AP presents America to the rest of the planet. It is the most powerful news source in America. It's 100 times more influential than Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. The AP dwarfs the New York Times' impact and influence. All of those news sources rely on the AP's content. Although unknown, Jenna Fryer determines how the world views Bubba Wallace, NASCAR, and America's race fans. Her work is the foundation for all other news sources. ESPN ran her story on Wallace at the top of its website. Fryer and the AP decided to wrap Wallace's rain-shortened victory in the Yellowwood 500 in a racial narrative. They decided to present it as a historic moment. These narratives are chosen by the media, by the TV networks, by the leagues in need of historic moments to boost ratings. As I wrote yesterday, Wendell Scott got his chance to race on the Dixie circuit in 1951 because a smart promoter realized the best way to attract fans to the Speedway in Danville, Virginia, was to have a black driver compete against white men. Wendell's popularity on the Dixie circuit inspired NASCAR to let him race. America has changed for the better. The country is far less racist than it was in the 1950s and 60s. The American media has not changed for the better. The media is far more sinister, subversive, and clandestine with its racism than it was 60 years ago. Corporate media is the wolf in a black female sheep's clothing. Let's examine how the AP and Jenna Fryer handled Wendell Scott's narrative and Bubba Wallace's. Fryer and her editors intentionally chose to present Scott's 1963 victory in Jacksonville and Wallace's victory on Monday in the most racially polarizing and divisive way. Fryer's Tuesday story included this paragraph. Wallace is the first black driver to win at the top level of the elite stock car race series since Wendell Scott in 1963, a race in which he wasn't declared the victor until long after Buck Baker had already been awarded the trophy. NASCAR at last presented Scott's family with his trophy from that race two months ago. That's what Jenna Fryer wrote. The paragraph clearly insinuates that NASCAR waited more than 50 years to recognize Scott as the winner of the race. It's an intentional distortion. It's what we like to call a white liberal lie used to trigger people emotionally. Here's the truth about what happened to Wendell Scott in 1963. It was written in the Jacksonville newspaper In 2010, I quote, the guy won the race in Jacksonville. The newspaper in Jacksonville wrote about it in 2010. Here are the facts 
according to the people at ground zero of Wendell Scott's victory. It took two hours long after the fans left the Jacksonville track before NASCAR upheld a protest by Wendell Scott. Racing rival Buck Baker originally was declared the winner. He took the checkered flag. NASCAR then poured through its handwritten scorecards and agreed that Scott actually drove two extra laps. Official records now show him two laps ahead of the field. Scott eventually was declared the winner and received the first place winner's check. He also received a trophy, not the original, four weeks later before a race in Savannah, Georgia. Those are the facts published in the Jacksonville newspaper for everybody to see. If she's the alleged motorsports expert, I'm unqualified to talk about this, but I can hunt down the facts better than Jenna Fryer. This is intentional distortion. This is intentionally done to trigger people emotionally along racial lines. This is done to divide us. The AP is America's news source to the world. Jenna Fryer is sloppy. Her editors are sloppy. They're doing this intentionally. They're doing it at the behest of China. They're compromised. This is fake news. You should go read the entire Jacksonville article. Scott and Buck Baker were actually friends. Baker sold Scott the first car Scott ever raced. At the time of Scott's victory, it was commonplace in the 1960s for there to be scoring discrepancies. It happened all the time. Scott's victory wasn't a big deal because only a couple of the races even mattered at that time. NASCAR wasn't a big deal then. This is all detailed 10 years ago, 11 years ago, in the Jacksonville newspaper. Go read it for yourself. It's not hard to find. Send it, send the damn article to Jenna Fryer and the editors at the AP. You don't need to be Inspector Clouseau to find this stuff out. You just gotta not wanna be race baiting 24-7, 365 for relevancy. Jenna Fryer's Tuesday story also stated that NASCAR didn't give Scott's family a trophy until two months ago. That ain't true either. There's a story from 2010 in the Jacksonville newspaper about the Jacksonville Stock Car Racing Hall of Fame and NASCAR presenting Scott's descendants with a trophy. It was a 45 minute ceremony. So let's go to the final scorecard here. Let, let, let's check the judge's scorecard for the final tally. For what Wendell Scott, for a single victory in 1963, Scott received the winner's paycheck, a trophy in Savannah, Georgia, four weeks later, when he died. His family got a trophy and a ceremony in Jacksonville. And just two months ago, his family got a third trophy and ceremony from NASCAR. Wendell Scott is in several Hall of Fames, and his grandson is employed by a foundation dedicated to promoting Scott's legacy. Wendell Scott, I mean, my God, how much better treatment could you get than what he's got? I mean, Lord, have, he won one race. Just think about this. This would be the same, and I, it sounds like I'm denigrating, but I'm, I'm not. I'm just trying to put this whole thing in perspective. He won one race. This would be the equivalent of the first black boxer at any weight class or a heavyweight class, whatever, the first one to beat a white fighter. Oh my God, he won a, he won a pro fight. He didn't win the heavyweight title. He just won a fight. Wendell Scott isn't Jack Johnson.
the first black heavyweight boxing champion. Wendell Scott isn't Jackie Robinson, the first black Major League Baseball player, a six-time All-Star, winner of the National League MVP award in 1949, a World Series champion in 1955. Wendell Scott isn't Althea Gibson, the first black to win the Wimbledon tennis tournament. Wendell Scott isn't George Coleman Poe, the first black American to win an Olympic medal. I'm not trying to denigrate Wendell. From everything I've read and learned about him, he was a man without ego, an extremely hard worker, someone his family and peers respected. He got his start in racing as a promotional tour for the Dixie Circuit and later NASCAR. Bubba Wallace is the new promotional tour. Tool. Like Scott, Bubba isn't Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan or Muhammad Ali. He's not an all-time great. He's not better than his competitors. In order to make him appear better, Jenna Fryer and the Associated Press have created the appearance that he's overcoming the KKK, the Proud Boys, Trump supporters, insurrectionists, the descendants of Jefferson Davis, Jason Whitlock, and everybody damn else. Fryer wrote this morning, Wednesday morning, about the garage door rope knot that Wallace never saw. She insists on calling it a noose, and yes, it looks like a noose. It's a freaking knot. She complained that people on Twitter sent Wallace mean tweets. She lamented the fact that some race fans boo Wallace. Booing, tweets, ropes on a garage door are the equivalent of cross burnings, lynchings, and fire hoses. It's all fake news. It's stirring racial animus for profit. Everybody wins. Jenna Fryer, Warwick Scott, Bubba Wallace, NASCAR, the Associated Press, and all of America's adversaries, all the people in China, the, the, the CCP, all the people that want to see this country burn to the ground. They all win. All right, on Thursday, we started talking about Dave Chappelle and The Closer, his Netflix special. Steve Kim was in studio with me. Uh, so was, uh, who am I forgetting? So was Leonidas. Why am I forgetting Leonidas? He was in studio with me. We had a very interesting discussion about Dave Chappelle and The Closer. Here's a little bit of a small fire that I started that turned into a huge fire later in the week, but uh, take a listen to this first. Part of the conceit of this entire show is that two groups of people have let America down, and it's why America is in the shape that we're in. And it's my contention that ministers and comedians have let us down over the past decade. Ministers and comedians have been authorized and licensed to speak uncomfortable truths. And the ministers have gone woke, uh, comedians are afraid of being canceled, and the truth has been in regression or receding out of fear because social media has so much control over the American discourse. And so from the pulpit, we don't get unvarnished truth, we get a compromised gospel, a gospel that lives in fear. And then from the comedic stage, from Saturday Night Live to every late night talk show, everybody's got the same punchline. Everybody just comes on stage, Trump! Trump supporters! Uh, and everybody just laughs out, oh my God, he said Trump! <laughs> and, and it's like, I'm tired of that joke. It's not, I'm not bothered by Trump jokes, but I need a variety of jokes and I need both sides or the people that are being the most comical and crazy to be lampooned because maybe that'll talk some sense into them. And people have seen me on this show talk about, I've written columns about like Bill Maher and what he's been doing on real time 
lately. It's been very important, and, and I say that in all seriousness because humor is a good way to get at the truth. Humor is a good way to get at people that lie and make fun of them and make there be a price for being as ridiculous and stupid as, they, as they've been. And we get none of that from our professional comedians. And that's why I sit around and applaud Bill Maher and say, wow, I appreciate you doing that. I, Greg Gutfeld and Fox News, uh, you know, what they're doing, I applaud it. Uh, but we need more of it. And now with The Closer, Chappelle's uh, latest comedy special, I think it's 72 minutes on Netflix. Dave Chappelle just wagged the biggest pair of balls I feel like I've ever seen from any celebrity. Uh, Dave Chappelle has FU money and he used it properly with his uh, special he just did for Netflix. I think it's the most fearless, courageous, important, and hilarious comedy special uh, that I've seen in quite some time. Dave Chappelle talked about things that we normally only talk about in private. Comedians certainly don't talk about it. Ministers, many of them have been afraid to talk about it. Uh, but a conversation that has been going on in private, particularly in the black community, and Dave's a, a, a black comedian, he brought them all to the surface. Uh, this closer special, this guy goes after <laughs> Jewish people. He went after the LGBT community, and he went after the feminist movement. And as a black person, I was sitting back in like amazement, like, you can do this on Netflix? <laughs> you can do this on the biggest comedic stage that we have in America, in any stage that Dave Chappelle takes, is a major platform? And he just talked about the three things that we talk about all the time privately, Dave talked about publicly, and he's taken a lot of heat. I, I'm not, to me, I thought what I heard from Dave on this stage and taking the performance overall is that he doesn't care anymore. He crossed that line where he doesn't care if big corporations or the major sponsors ever do business with him again. He took some real risks, particularly his space Jews joke. And I was just been on Twitter uh, uh, today. He enveloped his whole thing around two space Jews jokes. And I went online and looked and like, he's being called anti-Semitic uh, for cracking these jokes. I think it's being distorted, uh, what he said, but he's being attacked and trying to be canceled for that. Certainly, I, I've seen the New York Post wrote a story about GLAAD and the LGBT people all being upset. There are people talking about quitting Netflix. And then he went after the feminists. And so we're gonna get into all of that and break it down a bit more, but it is the most important comedy special that I've ever seen. Uh, and it's just well needed. To me, it's like, it's a ray of hope. It's a, br uh, a, a, a breath of fresh air. It's water in the desert. It, it, it makes me think, well, maybe we will come out on the other side of this woke thing uh, because I see Chappelle, I see Bill Maher, I see other people breaking away from uh, cancel culture and social media, and Dave at one point said, you know, Twitter's not real life and not the real world. Um, I just thought it was amazing. I'm gonna shut up and see if Steve Kim and Leonidas uh, completely agree with me or agree with me. I know for, you know, they enjoyed it, but uh, Steve, we'll start with you. Uh, what was your overall impression of what you saw from Chappelle? I thought Chappelle got back to being who he is, which is funny. When you go to a stand-up set, no matter who you are, a race, religion, uh, demographics, you better expect that at least one time you're gonna be offended. And if you are, it's probably a great show. Your job as a stand-up comedian is to be social, to be political, but also to be funny. And that also means offensive. And, and you saw a guy, the recent death, God rest his soul, Norm MacDonald, he never went away from his base. Now, I agree with you about Dave Chappelle, uh, having his own voice again and not wanting to become Chris Rock, who I don't think is funny anymore. It's really sad to see. 
okay? It, it, it's, he's at that stage now where he's given up reins of his own material. But here's the issue, though, Jason. I don't know if it's going to lead any type of revolution, given the fact that the guys like um, him, Bill Maher, they're at the economic apex. As you said, they have FU money. Everyone else is just trying to make a living. And it's kind of like boxing in a sense that 98% of the money is made by 2% of the performers. A guy like Dave Chappelle who's already etched his name or his face on that Mount Rushmore, you're right. He could probably walk away right now, not make another dollar, and his great-grandkids are going to live very, very well. The other let's say 99% of those people that are trying to do what he does, they have to put on this performative wokeness, as I call it, to stay within the lines, not blur the picture. Is it approved by the certain masses? And if that happens, they, can, they are then allowed to make a living. It's interesting that Dave kind of framed it as his last performance. Well, a lot of people do that, from Too Short to Sugar Ray Leonard. They always come back. <laughs> Rolling Stones have had, what, 10 last comedy uh, concerts. So maybe Chappelle comes back in five minutes. I thought the last part of what he said was to the LGBT community is, look, I'm done with it. But I'm just wondering if he was actually making fun of him, saying, you've gotten me out of comedy, or I can come back at any time and still say stuff about you. But be very mindful. In my view, Jason, until it is that middle-class performer that's making a living but doesn't have FU money, until those guys in mass have that type of message, I'm not so sure what really changes. Uh, Jordan Peterson says, and I'll start off with this point, he says that you know, if you're going to speak, you're going to offend somebody. That's just the way it is. There's, no matter what it is, what the topic is, if, then, if enough people, people hear you say something, somebody in that crowd is going to be offended. So the idea that you can say something and not offend somebody is not, it's not reality. All right, that was me rubbing two sticks together to start this fire that I ignited on Friday when I went all the way in praising Dave Chappelle. He's Patrick Henry. He's Malcolm X. Give me liberty or give me the ballot and the bullet. What did I say? Anyway, you take a listen. The society that outlaws personal offense suppresses truth and freedom. This is the danger of criminalizing thoughts and ideas, including abhorrent ones. Comedian Dave Chappelle is currently the number one target of the thought police. His latest and allegedly final Netflix comedy special violated the left's thought policies. He cracked jokes and made points that allegedly deeply offended the LGBTQ wing of the Alphabet Mafia, the ruling family of the new underworld order. Did you get that new underworld order? Uh, Glad the Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation has called for Netflix to remove the closer from its streaming service. A group called National Black Justice Coalition added its voice to Glad's. The NBJC is a Washington DC based black crew of LGBT soldiers. Chappelle is a wanted man, a fugitive accused of transphobia, homophobia, toxic masculinity, anti-Semitism, and truth-telling. Glad tweeted, Dave Chappelle's brand has become synonymous with ridiculing trans people and other marginalized communities. Negative reviews and viewers loudly condemning his latest special is a message to the industry that audiences don't support platforming anti-LGBTQ diatribes. We agree. That's Netflix, that we did not include me. Uh, Netflix platformed a comedian who thinks the wrong thing. So what exactly does Dave Chappelle think? He thinks that the Alphabet Mafia has created a world where we care more about hurting a gay person's feelings than the murder of a black man. He thinks sexual identity and gender identity have an outsized influence over American culture. He expressed this opinion by pointing out that the rapper DaBaby did more damage to his entertainment career with his criticism of gay people than he did shooting and killing a black man inside a Walmart. The truth is, Chappelle's thought crimes in The Closer 
are deeper than gay and trans jokes. The closer challenged the entire orthodoxy of the ruling establishment. And it issued the challenge using the ruling establishment's weapon of choice, race. A black man from middle America declared war against the left's evisceration of masculinity in general and black male heterosexual masculinity in particular. Chappelle argued and quipped that Jews, feminists, and the LGBTQ movement are standing on the backs and necks of black men, preferably dead ones, to seize power. I wanna restate that because most reviewers are intentionally mischaracterizing or misinformationing the point of the closer. A black reviewer for, the, for NPR, Eric Degans, wrote a piece saying that Chappelle is, quote, using white privilege to excuse his own homophobia and transphobia. The Alphabet Mafia is clearly feeding Deegan's a steady diet of butter biscuits, or Deegan is a made man in the Alphabet Mafia. Those are the only plausible explanations for a black man this badly missing the point of Chappelle's message. Chappelle cleverly and correctly argued that Jews, feminists, and the LGBTQ movement have seized power by covertly camouflaging their power grabs as selfless fights for racial equality. Chappelle used the baby as a proxy for heterosexual black men. He demanded that the alphabet mafia remove its foot from the baby's neck. Chappelle was talking about his own neck. He was talking about my neck. He was talking about comedian Kevin Hart's neck and anybody else's neck that identifies as male, black, and straight. I'm a writer. I can recognize literature even when it's delivered verbally from a stage. Chappelle conveyed an essay, a letter from a prison cell social justice warriors have built for straight black men. The closer should be renamed, I can't breathe. You're choking me. I can't breathe. You're choking me. That's the cry of straight black men in America. Do you hear us? Chappelle touched several third rails. That's why Alphabet Mafia soldiers have been dispatched to kill the messenger and distort his message. Chappelle is being accused of anti-Semitism for his two space Jews jokes that infer Jewish people rule the world and that they have gone from oppressed to oppressor. In the new underworld order, you can only crack those kind of jokes on American white men. Chappelle cannot generalize about the executives who asked him to wear a dress and the executives that sit atop a music industry that lavishly rewards rappers for denigrating black people. I risk being accused of anti-Semitism for daring to properly interpret Chappelle's comedy and for arguing his point of view is worthy of discussion. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not a conspiracy theorist either. I'm frustrated. I want to identify whatever secular forces are being used to castrate heterosexual Christian men, particularly the black ones. The gatekeepers of popular culture, the executives at the top of Hollywood and the music industry seem to be hostile toward me. They seem obsessed with protecting the feelings of feminists and the LGBTQ and casting me as a self-defined immoral thug with fantasies of betting Billy Porter. The Closer captures the battle between black straight men and the feminist LGBTQ movements. The left argues feminists and the LGBTQ and black men are all allies, natural allies in the war against Donald Trump and his supporters. Reality is quite different. Dave Chappelle doesn't hate Trump or his supporters. 
As he admitted in his comedy special, Chappelle goes to bars in rural Ohio and drinks with Trumpers. He lives among them. Great comedians cut through false narratives and expose the truth. Ministers and comedians are supposed to be guardians of truth. They're given permission to speak uncomfortable truths. They open the door for the rest of us to engage in difficult conversations. They create an environment where the truth can live and be talked about and discussed. The Closer is the most important comedic sermon ever delivered. It's equal parts Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech at the Second Virginia Convention and Malcolm X's The Ballad or the Bullet speech at Cleveland's Cory Methodist Church. BLM, LGBTQ, CRT, the Alphabet Mafia, and its megaphone, Twitter, have jeopardized free speech in America by outlawing personal offense. The price of uttering the wrong word or thought is so high in our new safe space culture that speaking the truth is too risky for too many Americans. In order to maintain a free and just society, we must tolerate people saying and thinking whatever they please, including things we find rude and offensive. Dave Chappelle is a patriot and a genius. Okay, hit that subscribe button, hit that like, do, do whatever, support this show, support our sponsors, and keep Uncle Jimmy in your prayers. I'm Jason Whitlock, I'll see you next week.